Hi everyone, and welcome to tonight's Walkley Media Talk, hosted by our event partner, the State Library of New South Wales. I'm Helen Sullivan, the Walkley Foundation's Communications and Multimedia Manager. First, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the elders, past and present, of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'd now like to welcome our panel. Now to introduce our speakers. Lisa Murray is a senior writer at the Australian Financial Review. She's just returned from almost six years in Shanghai as the AFR's China correspondent. Lisa has more than 15 years' experience as a journalist, is a former media writer for the Sydney Morning Herald, and a former economics reporter for Bloomberg News in Sydney. Wanning Sun is Professor of Media and Communication Studies at UTS. A media anthropologist, she is best known for her research on Chinese media, soft power and public diplomacy, and rural to urban migration in China. Wanning recently published a commissioned report, Chinese Language Media in Australia, Developments, Challenges and Opportunities. Philip Ivanov has been CEO of the Asia Society since January 2015 and is a China specialist with extensive experience in policy, education and research. Previously, he was a policy offer and manager of the Australia-China Council, part of DFAT. Philip was one of the principal authors of the Australia in the Asian Century White Paper. Previously, he was acting director and deputy director of the Research Institute for Asia and the Pacific at the University of Sydney. Xie Yong Lo is a writer, policy advisor, and commentator. As a Chinese-Australian, he has spent many years advocating on behalf of Chinese-Australian communities and often serves as a leading voice on social and political issues facing Chinese-Australians. Lisa, I wanted to ask you about something that you wrote in your piece wrapping up your six years in Shanghai. You said, in China, almost all media is state-owned, so there is a misperception that the same is true for foreign correspondents. Talk to me a bit about this perception and how it affects or affected your work as a correspondent there. You know, it's widely known that more than almost the whole, all of the newspapers in China, um, the broadcasters, they're all state-owned. And so uh, there's a feeling among the government there and the foreign ministry that foreign correspondents also work for their government. I know we're going to get into this in the how is the media covering China um, part of the discussion, but this was starkly put to me in one conference I went to where we discussed the Fairfax ABC, you know, series that has sparked a lot of the debate about the influence of the Chinese Communist Party on Australia's political system and other parts of society here. And the way it was put to me was that the feeling among government workers in Beijing was that that series was directed by the government here. And I think it's because there's not a very sophisticated understanding of how the media works in Australia and there is still this perception that journalists, um, particularly for the ABC because it's the national broadcaster, actually work for the government. And so, so that was just one thing. In terms of how we operated, I think that there are definitely constraints put on journalists who um, are Chinese journalists in China. And, you know, we talked about the three Ts. You can't really talk about Taiwan or Tibet or Tiananmen. But also the, the absolute, at the top of the list, what you cannot talk about is the wealth of um, government um, and Communist Party leaders. And so I think the difference in China in being a foreign correspondent in China was that they actually broke stories because Chinese journalists themselves, very good investigative journalists, but they were constrained in what they could write. And so when you had the exposés on the wealth of Wen Jiaobao in the New York Times, it was the New York Times that broke it, and when you had the um, expose on the wealth of Xi Jinping's extended family, that was Bloomberg, and they were blocked for that. So I think there, there's a different role for foreign correspondents in China because of the way the media works. And over the course of your six years there, what changed? 
so much. <laughs> we arrived in 2012 when Xi Jinping was just taking power and at the time it was quite exciting to be a journalist in China. A lot of the commentators were emboldened to um, give their opinions online. Uh, Weibo was huge. Uh, we would go into the office every day and look at Weibo to see whether um, there was a protest on. There were lots of environmental protests at the time. There was sort of this feeling that the internet was opening things up in a way that China couldn't control. And actually, China did control it. And I, I say China, and I, excuse me, I mean the Chinese Communist Party leadership did control it. That's impressive, actually, what they've managed to do. And I think part of the way they did that was at the same time as, as you had Xi Jinping come in and take what I think surprised people in being a more sort of a, a stricter uh, stance on the media and, and other parts of society, um, you also had the rise of WeChat. And so that meant that people were sharing their news and views on WeChat, which when you think about it is a lot easier to control because WeChat, you would have to register if you wanted to have a group that was more than 500 people, whereas Weibo could, like Twitter, goes out to everyone. And it's much easier to control that with the censorship regime that's in place. So I think what changed for me was that slowly over the six years there was a lot more control on the exchange of ideas and opinions um, and journalism became a lot harder for the local journalists. One of the things that I was very surprised about when I was there was because I was chaperoning these journalists, I sat at the back of a lot of classrooms um, as they gave lectures to journalism students. And like students anywhere in the world, most of them were on Facebook. You know, they're supposed to be living behind the Great Firewall, but here they were browsing Facebook, in some cases looking at YouTube. There were lots of titters when one of our journalists couldn't access YouTube because the whole class knew that they could, but couldn't publicly, sort of in front of him. Uh, in some cases on sort of Gmail as well. And the way that they were doing it is via something called a VPN, which for those who don't know, it basically masks where your computer is so that you can access the internet as though you were in Sweden or Australia or anywhere else. I'm interested to hear, Philip, from you on this, how common the use of VPNs is. Um, I know she, President Xi has cracked down on them recently, even more, and whether you think that they pose any kind of threat or, or could lead to any sort of change. Thanks very much. Uh, look, I don't know much about VPN, and the, I know about the technology. I don't know about the, the recent moves to crack down on it, but I just wanted to say that there is a great diversity of views exists in China that is not seen in the traditional Chinese language media, but is very much active in the sort of the spaces where still not fully or 100% controlled. Like Weibo? So if you look at the, again, on WeChat is a, is a space where these debates are playing out. If you look at the recent report, for example, by uh, Merics, which is an institute in Europe, that looks at the sort of the scale of political debates on Chinese internet, and it identifies, for example, 11 ideological clusters, uh, the people that support sort of a, a very strict Maoist sort of philosophy, the market lovers, the party warriors, all these debates are, are in the absence of free independent media are playing out in the, in the WeChat space and obviously VPN is an enabling technology to get information or to, to kind of break through the great Chinese firewall. So the diversity of views is there, and I think one of the things that we 
uh, we tend to forget in Australia as well as in the Western world more generally that it's not a homogenous society. It has a great diversity of views, uh, very critical of the Chinese Communist Party, and so th these debates are playing out not in the traditional media but online, and it's a very interesting space to watch. Yeah, I think it is. Um, it's a great sort of misconception, and it's it's partly because many of us don't know what censorship looks like or don't think we know what censorship Helen, uh, if you don't mind, two of the issues that we've recently seen that got into the China censorship space was uh, Eurovision. I'm not sure whether everybody saw the, the blatant censorship of the coverage of the Eurovision semifinals where um, uh, the Chinese television network Mango TV specifically blurred out a LGBTI rainbow flag in the audience, which was quite interesting in itself. And then the um, European Broadcast Union responded by disallowing Mango TV to show the second semi-final and also the grand final. The other phenomenon that, that's really surprised me over the last couple of months is the Me Too movement in China. And a lot of Chinese Me Too activists are using blockchain to avoid government censorship. But also there's a lot of increased activity in universities uh, around that movement, you know, students speaking out against professors and teachers. And also, you know, there was an interesting piece in the New York Times talking about the Me Too movement in Peking University, where they're saying that there's a couple of students who's been leading the charge on that particular issue. The interesting part of that New York Times piece was it drew to the historical context where a number of important Chinese social movements actually started at that particular university. As Philip said, there's a lot of ideas out there, both online and offline. And the best way to gaze into the view of the, the current generation of Chinese young people is if you are the one. Does anybody watch Fei Tong Wulao? I mean, that, that is a, a clear sort of indication of how young people think in, in modern China back to LGBTQI issues as well. Wasn't it sort of two months ago? I think it was Weibo that tried to crack down on conversations about LGBTQI issues and there was uproar from, from local media and Weibo backed down. Correct. So, you know, so I think um, if China intends to be a more open regional sort of rule maker as it's trying to sort of establish itself to be, then it needs to acknowledge that it is a part of the region and a part of the world and there needs to be a bit more openness on some of these sensitive topics. Wanning, could you tell us a bit about sort of how you feel with the journalists that are reporting, what their relationships with academia? I think that, that quite uh, useful to talk about uh, the, the relationship between the China studies experts in this country and the journalism that we, we see in the Australian media because... Uh, when a new situation arises or some new incident occurs and a journalist writes a story and, of course, they would go and say, oh, who is the expert in this area? Or go and interview some people. And so, you know, the China Studies scholars will be called upon to comment on things. Being a China Studies academic myself and talking with colleagues all the time, I actually realized that actually the relationship between the scholars and the media is not a very, very easy one. And academics tend to, China scholars, most of the majority of them tend to feel quite ambivalent about talking to the media. Uh, there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, one is that I think academics tend to be quite precious about their work. <laughs> and they think that I've been to the same village for the last 10 years and write about this village. And uh, so 
I'm not qualified to talk about another village. So if you ask me a general question about the Australian-China relationship, I really am not qualified to do that, so talk to someone else. And they do that because they don't want to be seen to be stepping outside. They're, they're quite territory people, but at the same time, they res uh, respect other people's territory. So they, they will usually shy away from, from the media for that particular reason. Another reason they are a bit shy is because they, they do actually feel from time to time that they do talk to media, but they feel that they are quoted out of the context or they are, they, can't, they are quoted, but they are actually quoted in a way that actually miss sort of, miss sort of construct uh, what their, their intentions. So they feel a bit frustrated, and, but they're not actually realizing that journalists usually have about two hours to write a story, whereas they have two years to write that story, <laughs> right? And so we all know that if you go to China, if you're a foreigner, you go to China for one month, you say, I'm going to write a book about China, <laughs> right? But if you live there for actually one year, you think, mm, maybe you only know enough about China to write an article. But if you live there for 10 years, you say, God, it's so bloody complicated. I don't think I can say anything about it, <laughs> right? So journalists and, uh, and the media uh, and, you know, they work in a very, very different pace and uh, rhythm from academics. And the, there is this kind of... Uh, you know, this kind of uneasy relationship you like. As a result of that, you only have limited the number of uh, academics who are quite happy to talk to, uh, to, to journalists. And I think in the, the whole development of the China influence narrative for the last 18 months, we have seen a pattern, particularly at the very beginning, where a few academics in China studies were prepared to comment just about on anything. Right, and never mind they're not they actually it's not the ex expertise, but they're always quoted as eminent China scholar. The rest of the us just feeling we just muttered among ourselves, and then we talk about it in the corridors, and we exchange emails with each other, saying, "God, this is terrible." You know, this, there's a few people that are shaping the debate and informing the media. We really should do something about it. And I remember Stephen Fitzgerald they actually kept writing emails to us, said. What are we going to do about this? So eventually we felt that you know, the, we are the silent majority. We really have to do something. It's really important for us to speak up. Precisely because of that, we actually decided to get together. As Stephen uh, Fitzgerald said, it's not easy to get academics to get together and make a public statement. Mm -hmm. But we did. We made a submission to the Parliamentary Committee on the Foreign Influence Bill, and we published our letter as an open letter. If you go to the uh, uh, policy forum, you will find that letter. And the letter is called uh, a public letter from concerned China scholars. When that went in, there's about 30 signatures. But we started, we still kept the signature uh, accepting process uh, open. At the moment, there are 80 scholars. How many China study scholars in this country? Probably about 100. <laughs> or something. So, so I'm seeing some really nice change now. Quite a few stories that have come up after that actually started to quote story, uh, scholars from so-called silent majority. So the views are getting more and more diverse, and that's a very pleasing um, sort of development. At the same time, you've written a little bit about how the changing public debate in media about China has affected Chinese language media within Australia and has sort of affected the views that are expressed there in terms of being proud of Australia. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I actually I did publish the report two years ago precisely on the development of the Chinese language media inside Australia. 
technically, they're part of the Australian media. They are not owned by the Chinese government. They are run as business. Their primary purpose is to make money. But they're usually kind of lumped together with two things. One is they're lumped together with the Chinese state media. Right? They don't make that, that such a distinction. And that's really misleading. And also there is another tendency to actually lump them together with the existing ethnic newspapers and radio, which is indeed uh, playing, um, having a very close relationship with the state Chinese media. The sector that I'm particularly interested in is the digital Chinese language news media. And they're run by the, those Chinese business people. And I'm actually seeing a lot of examples whereby they're actually very actively uh, watching the uh, sentiments of the Chinese community, registering that sentiment and expressing that sentiment. And increasingly, these communities feel that it's wedged, it's, it's between a rock and a hard place. You know, China is becoming more and more authoritarian, and Xi Jinping's got tight and tighter control. Environmentally, it's becoming less and less livable, so people don't want to go back to China anymore. But on the other hand, they feel, you know, there is sort of anti-Chinese hostility here, and it's becoming less and less hospitable to be living here. So that media here is really trying to steer a, a way that they actually somehow expresses the Chinese people's sense of fear and anxiety and ambivalence in response to the war of words between, between the two sides. It's very, very difficult for them. From a community perspective for Chinese language media, it does feel a void within the community because let's not forget that at the last census, Chinese Mandarin is the second most spoken language in Australia after English. And constantly we're experiencing new waves of migration from China. And a lot of them obviously have limited English capacity. So Chinese language media do offer an alternative for a lot of these communities and families. My parents are avid readers of Chinese media. They, they've been here for 40 years, my parents, but you know their English is not not the best, so they can't actually pick up the AFR or as much as they want to, or any other sort of Australian publication, um, and you know keep up with the news of the day. And Chinese media is actually not very well resourced, to be honest. You know, a lot of them are. And wanting, please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of them are, you know, part-time uh, workers, you know, translators. You know, they're not proper journalists. So a lot of them obtain news clips from other sources and some of them may come from the Chinese state media. Some of them may be your translated media releases. Um, so they can't actually generate much content on their own due to the limited resources. But language media in Australia has really gotten, you know, a bad rap based on, you know, the current debate over the last 18 months. And, you know, it really does fill an important void for the community. And if Australian mainstream media are serious about engaging this particular cohort within the community, there should be more investment in supporting journalists with bilingual abilities. Should actually, you know, the, the Australians set up a, a Chinese language site, but it's mainly just translated articles um, from their main site which is not particularly engaging because there's not much opinion, there's not much sort of um, anecdotal, I guess, stories. So if the Australian media industry is serious about engaging Chinese Australians and Chinese language speakers, there should be more investment in Chinese language resources. I mean, the ABC, I think, um, had one, but I believe they've cut it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but anyway, I think it's a good opportunity for Australian media. Lisa, from within... 
within the AFR, do you see journalists reaching out to Chinese language media in Australia? What are your bugbears, I suppose, on how China is reported on within Australia, having come back? It was very interesting to hear Wanning's talk about academics because I think that's a, a huge problem. And I, I think it's terrific that they put it forward that submission at that they're now starting to have a conversation with journalists but you're the experts we're just sort of writings and 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 I think if you want to try and frame the discussion there needs to be more open cooperation between scholars and journalists because otherwise um, you know you don't get that sort of informed reporting that you would like to see and so it sort of doesn't benefit anyone so I think that's that's a really great development and hopefully that will change things. I also think I do agree that the debate has become very polarised and Twitter's an interesting forum, isn't it? Because there's a nasty tone to Twitter and I feel like when articles are published that don't fit a certain narrative, you really can get shut down on, on Twitter and and particularly for people who write comment pieces, perhaps not the reporters, but definitely for commentators, I feel like that sort of nastiness or snarkiness to the debate, it's it does silence some people who perhaps are the most informed people on that particular topic. And, and that worries me a little bit. But I do think it's changing. I know that at the Australian Financial Review, we make a very solid effort to have um, opinion pieces from all parts of the spectrum on this debate. And I think, I think we do that. And definitely as journalists, we do try and reach out where we can. But often people won't take the call and 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 that's the the difficulty yeah so i think i think there's things that the media are doing well and i would also say that writing about chinese communist party in attempts to influence the political system or universities or the media the local media that's a very legitimate story and there's been some very good reporting on that and I think we need to remember that and also we need to remember that this debate is not just happening in Australia it's happening in the UK it's happening in New Zealand it's happening in Canada and that's what happens when you have a country that is growing so rapidly and is wanting to flex its muscles uh, you know unsurprisingly so and do that overseas and and that's why these debates are happening and they're playing out in the media and and I think discussions like these are good to have so that you know we can air out some of the issues and try and have a proper discussion about it just a couple of comments i guess on what one Nin and and others said First of all, the Chinese community in Australia is, is very diverse, and so we shouldn't lump them all together. Um, they, they're coming from different backgrounds and cultures and communities, and they have very, very different views. So I would be very skeptical of anyone who represents the Chinese community of Australia because it's very, very diverse. Second point, we need to acknowledge the facts that some of the Chinese community, community media outlets are indeed owned by state-owned media companies in Australia. So not all, but some are, and, and, they, and they share their views and information in a particular way that is, presents a very positive view of China and not a very critical view of China. The point about the Chinese influence debate, I think it's, it's great that we have in that debate in this country, and as, as Lisa said, Many other countries are going through that process, and it's a, it's a very legitimate debate to have. And what, I guess, it makes the responsibility of journalists that are reporting on China, either China outside Australia or China within Australia, which is a very uh, important topic. It, it, it's, it's a great 
burden and responsibility to get that debate right because it's very sensitive. People get upset. People react to it in an emotional manner. We have a great tradition of Australian journalism on China. You know, and we have many people in the audience that, that reported from China or on China. I don't see any problem with the talent. I think we have great journalists like Lisa, like Angus and Greg. Um, I think we need way more of them because it's such a complex country to report on and therefore we need more content on China in our media. But also I, I feel, and I, in that way I, I agree with Wan Nin, is the, the commentators that Australian journalists always draw on are often the commentators that are very skilled in packaging information and commentary that is very easily digestible by media. And, uh, and academics and some other scholars that actually have are informed and have a lot to say uh, are not really skilled in, in, in doing that. And that may be their responsibility or their fault. But I would, I would strongly recommend our journalists who are doing an amazing job in covering China as well as Australia to actually look beyond that very narrow circle of commentators that we see in our papers and our TV that comment on China. More than half of them have absolutely no background in China whatsoever. For someone who is working on, in an organization that tries to build a deeper understanding of Asia within this country and prepare our leaders for the Asian century, it's quite frustrating to see that it's the same, uh, the same people keep commenting on any issue to do with Asia, foreign policy, China, Chinese community. So, I think the reporting is great and I want to congratulate Australian media on what they've done over the years on China. But just one piece of criticism is let's go beyond a couple of ANU commentators. To pick up on what uh, um, Philip was actually saying and what Lisa was saying, sometimes ju and, uh, academics just don't take the call. And I think there is also an institutional factor there. Unfortunately, universities seem to encourage us to speak to the media as a way of communicating to the public. At the same time, it does not reward us for doing anything like that. At the time, you know, uh, and energy we spend engaging with media and talking to the media, it doesn't really, to put in a cr very crass kind of way, it's not part of our KPI. What they count meticulously is your referee, the journal publications, right? That's what gets you promoted. That's what gets you jobs, right? So, you know, my research team would say, good on you, Wanin, for doing this, but, you know, if you don't do it, nobody, nobody, nobody minds. So I'm actually really sharing the sentiment of a lot of my China Studies colleagues who would just think, oh, let, you know, just, just leave him alone. I just want to get on with my work. I still I have two... I have two book contracts and I, I'm, I'm 18 months behind the deadline and I just want to go and finish my book, you know. Frankly, I haven't been able to do any of my own bread and butter work for the last <laughs> 12 months, really, because, because I think this is a very important debate. I don't want to stay away from this debate. But having said that, I haven't been able to do the academic work which is actually expected of me to do. So that I think maybe at the policy level, universities should now actually start thinking about encouraging their st uh, staff to participate and start counting this as, as part of their KPI. 
right, and start counting them. And the other thing about uh, uh, half a dozen people from ANU and other parts of the uh, Australia, I think it's, it's, it is indeed a very interesting phenomenon, particularly at the beginning stage of this debate 18 months ago. It was really, really shocking that these few people were the only people who got uh, approached. And I, get, I think there is a dynamic between the journalists and them to the point that the journalists pretty much knew what they were going to say. And they pretty much knew what the journalists wanted them to say. And if other journalists were not, uh, Chinese uh, scholars were not prepared to come forward, and it's just easier and time-saving just to go to the, the, the same people and knowing that they would provide the kind of quotes that, that, that's expected. And I think that's really unfortunate at the beginning stage. These few people were instrumental in a bad way in shaping the general direction of the debate. Because back then, I think journalists were really trying to get confirmation from experts about, is this the right interpretation? Can you actually confirm? And I think those, those academics, their voices were actually cited as the authoritative and representative voice of the China studies community in general. I was just going to add, I mean, for someone who's not a journalist, who's not an academic, it's been incredibly difficult to have your my voice out there on these issues you know unfortunately the like everything else in the 21st century uh, the media is driven by obviously eyeballs on screens and clicks and you know likes and retweets and um, all sorts of different phenomenons but for somebody who's not I wouldn't call myself a, a China scholar or a China expert and I wouldn't definitely not call myself a journalist it's been incredibly challenging but also an eye-opening experience to be involved in this debate. I can't remember how many articles I've written to media sources pitching for, you know, publication of op-eds, etc. Like I, you know, because I'm not somebody who's widely followed or, you know, I don't have a big sort of reputation or anything like that. I'm just somebody with a strong opinion on the Australia-China relationship and on the and concerns around this debate, um, I agree with Lisa. You know, tw Twitter is a horrible sort of. It's a it's good and bad with Twitter. Like I've been, I've had my allegiance called out on Twitter by a couple of people saying, "Where is where's your allegiance lie?" For some of the pieces that I've written, and that's been deeply traumatizing because I've never had my allegiance questioned by anybody, let alone by my fellow Australians. And in terms of some of the commentary that Philip was talking about, going back to the same three or four or five people, in addition to that, I think the Australian media should widen its coverage of China, not just focusing on the security context, but actually focus on some of the developments in China, socially, um, you know, culturally, etc. I'll be interested to hear Lisa's experience as a former foreign correspondent. Like, what's the coverage like of Australia in China? Like, is it also quite one-dimensional? And I think, you know, in addition to more diverse commentators, we also need more diverse content on China. I'll just say a couple of things because I feel like I have to, as the only journalist on the panel, defend, defend my industry. Um, I, you know, I think... From this discussion, we've got a real problem because on the one hand, what you're saying is that speaking to journalists is not a priority for those people who really know what they're talking about. And on the other hand, there's a lot of frustration that there's only a few commentators out there. And so I would just, so I would just say that our challenge as a journalist is to 
uh, we go in, something happens, okay, this is on breaking news, something happens, we have four hours to write a story. And, you know, so, so the person who answers the phone is going to get quoted. It's just the reality of the business. Um, but it doesn't mean that I don't try and ring lots of different academics. I do, believe me, and I don't get rung back, you know, and perhaps by talking about it tonight, that's one way we can try and address this sort of impasse so that there's not just a handful of commentators that become the authoritative voices on this debate, so I agree with that. And in terms of the way Australia is reported, I don't think we're very important, to be honest, um, <laughs> in, in, in the scheme of China. But, you know, the Global Times, I, I do think actually we get an outsized mention in, on some of these issues, um, you know, say compared to a Canada. Um, you know, we get quite a bit of attention in the Global Times and, and other publications. But, um, yeah, generally I think China's got more important things to think about. Over the course of your reporting, and you wrote a bit about this, you must have had a lot of people very often say to you, why don't you tell the good stories about China? Why don't you just focus more on the, the huge growth and the great... But I, you know, we told lots of good stories about China. I mean, you know, about the amazing, you know, high-speed rail, about the um, extraordinary environmental activists that I think really spearheaded an extraordinary change in China's um, environmental approach. Um, you know, about I, I just did a story about an amazing exhibition that will be here of chi female Chinese contemporary artists. I mean, you know, it's not that we're not writing those stories it's just that the ones that 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 get picked up and that and that the community is interested in are often the ones that are at the pointy end of things so yeah. they're they're the stories that are highlighted is there a story that you're sort of proudest of one of my most extraordinary experiences in China was actually a story I did on the anniversary of the Cultural Revolution and um, my assistant, very talented assistant, um, tracked down some a group of former Red Guards who were prepared to talk about their experience during the Cultural Revolution and they wanted to talk about it because they felt like their grandchildren and their children weren't talking about it and that, and that it was something that society needed to discuss. So we went out to lunch with this amazing group of people and and I think um, that's probably something that's lacking generally an understanding of, of, of the trauma that, that Chinese society went through with the Cultural Revolution and I think that's definitely probably the story that touched me most. If we do alienate... Chinese Australians in mainstream Australian media. What are the risks of that? You know, what could that lead to? I, I think there, um, there is this danger. I mean, it, what, what I call the push and the pull. Uh, I think on the whole, the, the Chinese migrants in Australia, uh, as migrant communities from elsewhere, anywhere else, are pretty good at uh, practicing what, pretty good at practicing flexible citizenship. <laughs> that is, they they have no problem having multiple allegiances. They could actually be still culturally quite emotionally attached to the country they come from, and but at the same time, they could be 100% in love with and enchanted by the country they have come to. And on a daily basis, these two can be uh, quite happily uh, coexisting. Uh, however, when the relationship between the two countries become tense, and then it is it does become very very difficult for the uh, for this community. So 
we have talked about how China has tried very, very hard to encourage the diasporic Chinese to promote its own message uh, from the Chinese point of view. At the same time, so that I, I will call it a pull factor, you know, pull it back towards China. At the same time, if Australian media started to have that kind of anti-Chinese rhetoric, and then actually it shocks a lot of people, but it doesn't shock me at all that the Chinese community actually take it quite personally, even though it's not talking about them. They still don't feel that great that their motherland is talked about in that term. So. There is the, it's a push factor. So I, I feel that they have pushed further and further away from this desire to integrate into the Australian um, society and actually identify themselves as one of the uh, uh, multicultural citizens and started to push Australia's public diplomacy agenda on behalf of Australia and build goodwill towards the Chinese people. And so at the moment, there's uh, this kind of goodwill, I think, is, is, is dwindling. And it's, it's actually, the, I would say, it's fast depleting. That's the danger that we're talking about. Just a little bit of context, I suppose. That we've never been, as a country, in this situation before. Uh, and we are a fairly young country, obviously. We've always had very powerful friends that we share values and history uh, and generally a broad worldview. Uh, now in our region that we call our own in Asia, we have an emergent power that is very, very different from us, politically, culturally, historically. And so this is all part of the process of learning about that new power in the region. And uh, in the medium term, and I don't know how things will play out in the longer term, I think in the medium term, we have three tools at our disposal that I think will help us to navigate this, this change. One is that we are a, a multicultural democracy, uh, very important. Two, we have free media. And three, we have extraordinary Australian Chinese community, uh, a million of them in this country. All this will help us, I'm, I'm quite optimistic, will help us to navigate this change, but it's not going to be very easy. Uh, it, it's going to be very difficult. We've never in our history faced the situation like this. And I think uh, the last thing that our political or cultural leaders or, uh, or any other representative <coughs> of our national leadership want to do is to go to war with one million of your citizens. It, it's, it's very important to be nuanced and balanced when we talk about their views and, uh, and our foreign policy in relation to China. I think this is part of our community and they will be a part of our, uh, our future in the region which is most likely dominated by China, let's face it. The way I see the China-Australia relationship is like a marriage. So for me, being a, a product of both those great countries and cultures. I mean, I was born here in Australia, but we have Chinese ancestry. Um, so when China and Australia fight or have any sort of potential conflict, we're caught in the middle. Like my mum and dad always says, if we do end up going into conflict with China, we'll be the ones locked up in a concentration camp. We'll be the ones that will be targeted 
um, because it's happened before throughout history. You know, during the Second World War, when the Japanese were, the Japanese in the U.S. were rounded up. Um, same with the Germans and the Italians, um, due to those particular conflicts. What I'm concerned about is not so much of the hard edge in your face racism, but also, but more importantly, the institutionalized racism that may occur from this debate. There was a report done by the Australian Human Rights Commission with the University of Sydney and uh, Asia Society Australia talking about the cultural diversity makeup of um, our institutions in, in media, in the business world, in academia, in politics. And I think the, the stats overall was like 95% of our CEOs were from an Anglo-Celtic European background. Already, you know, we've got Chinese Australians and Asian Australians that are very talented, as Philip just alluded to, but are finding it hard to um, excel and be recognised for their skills. This debate on Chinese PRC influence and interference has just made those barriers higher. Uh, there has been some instance, incidences where um, I've had a couple of young Chinese-Australians who were interested in politics, who wanted to participate and um, be involved. Um, so I was happy to, you know, introduce them to a, a couple of contacts um, in a number of the major political parties. And when they arrived at those particular branch meetings, branch members were saying, what are you doing here? Who are you representing? Like already there are, and these are people who are born here, people like myself, ABCs, you know, like fellow Australians questioning their, their allegiance. And that's the concern I have. And that's why I've been fortunate enough to, try and say my piece in this debate. You know, we have 1.2 million Chinese living in Australia. But what's unique about the Chinese-Australian community is it's one of the longest continuous migration communities since pre-Federation. It hasn't stopped. So, you know, we've got Chinese-Australians who've been here for eight generations versus newly arrived business investors coming off planes, you know, uh, on a monthly basis. So as Philip said, it's so diverse. It's such a diverse community, you know, and I think when the reporting on Chinese influence started, there was a lack of nuance around reporting on some of these issues, but I agree with Lisa. It's actually gradually getting better. When you read a lot of articles about PRC influence, you see, you know, journalists attempting to identify the diversity within the Chinese community. Mm. Can't paint the community in one brush. It's, you know, there are differences between the country versus the CPC, the party, versus international students, versus Chinese Australians. So I think um, it is getting better, but sometimes, you know, you still get surprised. I mean, for example, this year is a momentous occasion for the Chinese community. We're celebrating 200 years since the first arrival of the recorded Chinese Australian, Chinese migrant coming into Australia. There was a piece uh, yesterday in The Australian about that particular event. There was an event hosted here in Sydney where a lot of Chinese Australian leaders and representatives were invited to celebrate this occasion. And that majority of that Australian piece, and I'm sorry for pointing out the Australian on this, but was focusing on the gentleman who organised that particular event, Huang Xingmao. So that was the focal point of that story. It was about, you know, his obviously um, political donation activities rather than the occasion of the 200-year migration. So I think you know, ups and downs, but I'm confident that, you know, our, our media friends will be able to continue with robust coverage and nuance. Do we have any questions? 
I'm curious. There's nothing new about China growing. There's nothing new about China wanting to influence Australia. It's been going on for a long time. And I suppose China is not the only country that's trying to influence Australia. Why is it in the last 18 months, and particularly in the last six months, there's been such an intense campaign? What, what is the reason for it? And who is behind it? The government has two camps. One is those from the intelligence and uh, defense community who would be more negative to China. And there are those, the business and the diplomats in, in the government who are more neutral. So could I get some comments on this, please? Two things I would say that, that changed to, to perhaps make the debate more intense. Um, one was a couple of high-profile examples of um, Australian politicians who, uh, you know, received money from political donors and then acted in a way that looked like it was in the Chinese Communist Party's line of thinking. Um, and the other thing that I think changed is that under under Xi Jinping, I think things have tightened up and political reform hasn't happened in a way that people expected and that that has disappointed, you know, various elements and, and the security um, elements that you talk about. And, and I think that's what sparked uh, a big debate about this. That's what's changed in the last 18 months. I guess I could also try to add to Lisa's uh, two factors. Is uh, I think that uh, global uh, rise of political populism with Trump as um, populism, and I think it's not a, just limited to America. What's happened with Brexit, and so and, and that coupled with uh, uh, the decline of traditional journalism, media uh, sector is, is struggling, and uh, in times of uh, financial stress for medias, it is very very hard to to maintain a very, very rigorous sort of uh, investigative kind of uh, reporting. And this, even though media is as diverse as the academic world and there is a divergence of opinions that are more professional right, uh, journalists than, than others, I think there is, I don't know whether Lisa agrees with me, probably not, I think there is that institutional desire to, to pander to the populist the sentiment of the community. And that's one factor. The other factor is, uh, you already answered your own question, that uh, internal politics inside Australia, and I think China has become the China topic has become the casualty of this internal sort of inter-party politics. Um, Sam Destiari is, is, is one of the examples. And, and, and another example that you have identified, and I absolutely agree with you, and I think this debate has been dominated by what Jeff Raby called the security establishment and the diplomatic community and the university community and the business communities um, who are more worried about social cohesion, about more social and cultural issues, tend to be put on the back burner. Just wanted to know about the role of WeChat and how Chinese citizens use it. Is the role of WeChat and how Chinese citizens use WeChat today the same as before, where you can share news and views, or is it different due to um, censorship and this? And the citizens might be scared of using it because they're being controlled in some way, shape, or form. And then also, someone who watches uh, what people do on WeChat quite regularly because it's part of my research. I would say that uh, yes, there's a you know so many more messages get deleted on daily basis. 
you know, you know, you just open it, the link is not there. You just say, oops, the link is not working. Or sometimes it said it's been taken down. Um, but at the same time, it hasn't stopped the debate in China at all. And in fact, people are so good at playing cat and the mouse. You know, occasionally people will say, quick, read this before it's deleted. Yeah. And Usually, say the message is quick. Read this before deleted, and then once it's if it's deleted, something else will somebody else will, will, will post it. You know, it's just like a whack-a-mole. <laughs> you know, there's um, nothing you can do about it. The innovative ways that people talk about Tiananmen Square. One, one way was to call it May 35 instead of June 4. You know, the, and 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 constantly trying to to sort of keep ahead of the the, the censorship terms. Um, it, it could be some quite innovative WeChat use, actually. Very, very good, uh, clever use of uh, uh, what they call the homophones, the, the, the words that are pronounced exactly the same but mean something different. And this is something else that actually is, is sometimes escapes Western sort of uh, commentators about the Chinese media and how it works. That is, I always have believed that because the people in China and of people who come and come from China, are brought up to actually, in that kind of climate of uh, propaganda, they have been actually trained from the very beginning to read between the lines. They're very, very good at decoding messages and oppositional reading, if you like, much, much more so than the, uh, you know, the, the you know, every Joe in Australia who buys the daily newspaper or a Sydney Morning Herald. It is important to look at the control and the censorship in, in China, but not actually thinking about how how little sometimes impact it has on the people takes away the kind of agency that the people, Chinese people have on the ground and their capacity to construct their own meaning. Just to your question, there was one case um, right before I left where a 30-year-old guy made a joke about terrorism and he went to jail and the evidence that was used in court were his WeChat messages. So I think people are starting to think about, you know, in serious cases, the way the way they use WeChat. But I agree with Philip and wanting that there's um, uh, lots of debate and exchange still bubbling away under the surface. And I would add to, not just on WeChat, but there are a couple of really interesting publications like um, Pung Pai, the paper that came... And even though they can't report on those big no-nos, actually they're reporting on, you know, aged care and public welfare. You know, it was groundbreaking stuff. And they've got an English site called The Sixth Tone, which is excellent for anyone looking for that coverage. Um, I'm a Hong Kong reporter, recently moved to Australia, and I absolutely agree there's a lot of Australian reporter doing fantastic story covering China for Australian audience. And I, I get a sense from, from the speaker also that we all agree that uh, it's, it seems to not be the other way around that uh, the Chinese community, or I say the Asian community as a whole, is a little bit voiceless here in Australia. I will give a small example. Like one month ago, I was working for U.S. Uh, mainstream media and for the story on Australia on the foreign uh, interfere. And I come up to, uh, with the point that what about the Chinese community here that they are in between and they feel that they are not being, uh, they can't be not being prejudged to say anything that's pro-China. And they say, oh, that's too complicated, that we will not cover that part. So, and I think there is lack of complexity and actually courage on China here in Australia or the Chinese community. And I'm just wondering, practically, what do you guys think could help like, improve that a little bit? One way I could think of is that I could freelance for uh, some 
a different media organization preached story about the minority community here. But I just want to hear your opinion on this. A very, very good question, a very important one. And I think an immediate solution is to have more journalists from culturally diverse backgrounds reporting. And I see our friends in Media Diversity Australia here who's trying to make a dent in, in that particular um, aspect. There's one criticism that I have of our, our media um, organisations is there is generally a lack of cultural diversity in, in our in our media organisations. And I think having that sort of cultural understanding and nuance will enable uh, that particular journalist from that background to break down some of those issues and actually explain it in a culturally nuanced and appropriate way. And I think that's a real challenge for our media outlets is to employ, train up, mentor and support more journalists from culturally diverse backgrounds. We still have a long way to go. I think we're, we're getting there when it comes to gender diversity um, in, in the media, but cultural diversity needs to be a real focal point, in my opinion. I would also add that there is a complexity of, of business model breaking down of the traditional media that plays a part in this. Um, so the traditional media organizations are trying to reinvent themselves and their resource base is diminishing. So that also plays a big part on uh, both the quantity and the quality of the, of the reporting. And so the organizations that traditionally don't play in that space, they, they move in into this area. So, for example, from, for Asia Society, we, a few years ago, we started a magazine called China File. We edit it from New York, and it's online, it's free, it's philanthropically funded. And it was partly in response to what we saw, a lack of perhaps long-form journalism uh, or, 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 or lack of reporting on particular aspects of China that uh, simply because of the lack of resources or the lack of that kind of attention-grabbing immediacy of the news reporting that traditional media hasn't been covering. Here in Australia, we started a, a, a newsletter called Asia Briefing that the former Asia-Pacific editor of AFR, Greg Earl, is editing, who is in the audience today, also partly to not to compete with the media, it's a different role, but to complement and to add a, a, a different dimension to coverage of Asia in Australia and generally in China. So there's a few issues there beyond uh, cultural diversity, I agree, is, is, is also important, but it's also other factors. And I was just thinking, I was talking to uh, my staff when we were walk, walking here, uh, the, the technology, the translation and, and interpretation technology is changing rapidly. And, and I'm just wondering whether there will be a day in the not-so-distant future where, for example, uh, Australian English-speaking media organizations can almost immediately translate their content into the Chinese uh, and, and make that content available. And will that be a next tool in engaging the community that may not have, uh, may not have English-speaking skills? So there's a, there's a few, there's technological, there's economic as well as business trends that playing out. So it's not all about, uh, it's not all about bias or, or, or the lack of reporting on particular issue because of some political background or complexity of it. There's, there's a myriad of issues and, and the rise of China is in the middle of it.
election of Trump as the US president is another factor. And all these things are happening to us at the moment. And our next talk will be back here on June 21st, and we'll be looking at how we move towards gender equality in the media. We hope to see you there. You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast with me, Helen Sullivan. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com forward slash subscribe to be the first to learn about new episodes, events, and other opportunities. If you enjoyed this episode of Walkley Talks, you can subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate us. This podcast is produced by Miles Holbrook-Walk with help from the 2SER studios in Sydney, Australia. Till next time.